celebrate the launch of David Rothkopf's new book, American Resistance, the inside story of how the deep state saved the nation by becoming a member today. This month, new members will receive a free signed copy of the book, along with the usual member benefits, including an ad-free listening experience, members-only bonus content, an invitation to join the DSR Network Slack community, and more. To take advantage of this offer, visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and select the option titled American Resistance. Upon successful checkout, you will receive a confirmation email with instructions on how to redeem the book. The book retails for $29, but is included with this membership option. You'll just pay for shipping. Please allow two to four weeks for shipping. Thank you very much. Nine, twelve, ten, twenty-eight, two, twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I am your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from Washington, D.C. Uh, we are joined today by Ed Luce of the Financial Times, also coming from Washington, D.C. How are you doing, Ed? I'm doing great, thanks, David. Better than you. It sounds like you've got a cold. I do have a cold, but... Uh, I'm sorry to hear it. I'm sure I will get over it one way or another. I'll just nap while you talk here. Also, we are joined by Rosa Brooks, who's in a location I don't recognize, of Georgetown University. How are you doing, Rosa? I'm good, David. I'm back in Wyoming. You're back in Wyoming. But it doesn't, you know, normally when you're in Wyoming, it looks like you're in a barn. You're in some rustic setting. I'm sorry I don't have a horse or a cow or anything with me here. Yeah, <laughs> so am I. That would add a lot to it. We'll be joined soon by David Sanger. David Sanger is currently stuck in traffic in Washington, D.C., which is hosting a summit of African leaders. And, you know, I think it's an interesting place to start. The Biden administration has been very systematic in trying to make sure that they devoted some attention and bandwidth to each portion of the world with this idea that they have of sort of helping to to reset American priorities in each, Africa is the last of the spots that they are addressing, which, while that often seems to be the case, at least, you know, you've got to give them some credit for doing it. Ed, I don't know if you are like me, but for most of my career, people have said, you know, looking forward, the place we need to pay more attention to is Africa. and. Uh, you know, in terms of growing population, in terms of growing economic potential, in terms of global competition, we now see China and the U.S. engaged in quite a competition there. That seems to be true. Why does it always fall off the radar? Oh, that's uh, it's a very good question. Africa is is always tomorrow's agenda, and tomorrow never really seems to arrive. That said, Africa's 
is a, in a considerably less bad position, or at least was on the eve of the pandemic than it had been 20, 30 years ago. There is a rising Africa. There are parts of Africa that are no longer coup-ridden and that are, are beginning to compete on the global economy and attract diaspora, highly educated diaspora doctors and engineers to move back home. Then the pandemic hit. You know, I think it's great Biden is holding a, a summit of, of African leaders. It's certainly better that he hears from them what their concerns are. And I think what their concerns chiefly are, are about sort of being an afterthought in terms of the side effects of the war in Ukraine, in terms of food prices, in terms of energy prices, in terms also because of global monetary tightening led by the Fed of their growing indebtedness. As their currencies devalue against the dollar, their dollar debt becomes more and more unaffordable. So there are a lot of there are a lot of things that are really panicking a lot of Africa's leaders, quite understandably, that I imagine Biden is going to be hearing about repeatedly in the next couple of days. If you look, and this is counterintuitive to us here on Deep State Radio and to many of our friends, but if you look at which American president Africa liked the most in the last generation or so, it's George W. Bush because of PEPFAR, because of the, the help that America extended in terms of AIDS um, and combating AIDS and providing affordable antiretroviral drugs. And America has yet really to fully step up or to emulate that effort with the COVID vaccines. And in spite of some sort of promising signals, that never really came through. And so I suspect Biden's going to be hearing quite a bit about that as well. But overall, I mean, it's great that this is happening. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, I, I was actually going to bring that up. I think uh, of recent American presidents, by far the one who has done the most for the region was George W. Bush. And PEPFAR was a very big deal and made a, made a big impact in terms of the health of Africa. And he's highly regarded for it ever since. But, uh, you know, today when we look at it, Rosa, we tend to look at it through the same lens we look at through everything, which is Chinese competition. Here is China. China's investing in Africa. China's getting political influence. And, you know, I, I, I sometimes think about this. I think we, we tend to view everything that China does as a threat. But the reality is that China investing in Africa is good for Africa. I'm, I'm not saying their terms are good. I'm not saying they're not politicizing it. I'm saying, you know, anybody investing in this part of the world has some benefits for that part of the world. We tend to believe in competition in most aspects of markets, except when it's political competition with another power. Is it a mistake that we're looking at each of these regions as a competition for geopolitical influence as opposed to sort of looking for the net game for, for the planet? Uh, you know, I think it's a mistake to only look at regions as you know, pawns in a, in a game that we're playing uh, to increase our global influence. But I think it's impossible not to have that be part of the calculation. I think that there are, there are completely independent reasons, independent of what we think is the likely future of U.S. global power. There are independent reasons to think that, yes, all investment in, in Africa is going to be in the long run, probably beneficial for Africa, except for, you know, not, not everything, but most things. 
there's also reason independent of uh, geopolitics to, to think that we should be encouraging U.S. private sector actors to be investing more in Africa. You know, that there are, that there are potentially both skilled labor, there are markets, et cetera. That said, you know, even though I think clearly there are, there are reasons, there are humanitarian reasons, there are economic reasons for us to be supportive of that, it's sort of not possible to forget all about the competition. And I don't think we need to. I don't think it's desirable either. I think that it's not as though an effort to counter Chinese growing influence in Africa has currently spurred us to do more in Africa, right? It hasn't. Yeah, well, same, same question to you, Matt. I, I just, I, I was having a conversation this morning with somebody and it was just, I was struck by the fact that whenever we talk about China, we talk about either a threat or we talk about competition. But I think there's some strong arguments to be made that they're not that much of a threat right now. They might be at some point in the future. They're not right now. And in terms of competition, that's one way to look at it. But there is also the kind of rising tide lifts all boats. Economic growth is a stabilizing factor in the world. Their system is not our system. We don't approve of their system. And we hope that it changes. But the constant repetition of the notion of rivalry may not be highly constructive. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, you know, Washington is full of people with hammers and they just see nails. This is a defense industrial town still, and perhaps more, more than it has been for a long time. And that there is an obsession with China as an existential strategic threat at the expense of seeing China um, in other ways as a, a flawed, slowing middle-income power with politics that doesn't necessarily command the consensus of its people, which of course is therefore vulnerable to lashing out and external, external adventure and scapegoating. There's no doubt there is a potential threat from China. But if you look at the Biden administration's national security strategy that came out in October, which does highlight China as this threat. It also highlights China as the indispensable partner for dealing with challenges that we face in, in common, whether they be you know, global warming or pandemics or transnational crime, whatever it might be. These problems cannot be fixed whilst the world's two elephants are eyeing each other up and preparing to charge. So, you know, I think I've mentioned this before. It's that old cliche that a man who chases two rabbits catches neither. Well, th these are two rabbits the national security strategy is, has highlighted. China is a threat and China is a partner. And my fear is that the way the mindset is wired in Washington and the way the economic incentives are wired for, for um, the private sector players just across the, the river in Arlington and elsewhere where the defense industrial complex lives are that it's the first rabbit we're going to be going for, China as the strategic threat, rather than cooperating to, to or making an effort to cooperate on, on the overwhelming existential threat to our species in common, which is global warming. It's very, very easy, I know, for us to sort of comment like this from the sidelines. But I share what I think is the premise of your question. I see we're joined here by David Sanger. David, we've been talking a little bit about this Africa summit. You were stuck in the traffic. 
and the importance of looking at it. But we've been questioning this idea that we look at Africa and every place else through the lens of competition with China, and that there are multiple scenarios in which Chinese interests and ours can align, help each other, development being one of them, climate being one, helping education, addressing healthcare, and so forth. And that there is a trap in viewing a big country like China unidimensionally, primarily as a rival, primarily as a threat, when it is in fact so complex. I know you've thought a lot about this. What are your thoughts? Well, the first is, it's a great thing that President Biden is doing this summit because uh, there hasn't been one you know, like it in, in some time. I think one of the things that many of the African leaders who are here are intent upon is not being viewed as some kind of prize in a struggle between China and the United States. I think they want to be taken for their own issues and with their own challenges. And I think the administration is trying hard to go do that. But the fact of the matter is that China has figured out both because of Africa's natural resources and its strategic, the strategic opportunities it gives it, and the fact that there are a lot of nations that are alienated from Washington, that it is a big opportunity for them. And you saw that in how they were wiring up many uh, African nations for 5G. You've seen that in resource and sometimes in port deals. And so all of these are contributing to some overhanging sense at this summit that while China's name will never be mentioned, uh, I suspect, or rarely mentioned, that in fact, it is hanging over the Biden administration strategy. There is a risk here that in seeing everything through the lens of the competition with China, that we begin to lose sight of those things for which China and the United States could actually cooperate, or China and the West could. A year ago, that sounded easier in the area of climate, as uh, Ed was discussing. It sounded easier in a lot of different medical arenas. It's even sounded easier in terms of COVID. This year, it seems much harder, I think, just because we've hit one of those moments where both in Beijing and Washington, everything is seen as such a zero-sum game with China, and I think that's dangerous. If you're like me, you're probably a bit frustrated with the state of our political system today. So why does American democracy look the way it does, and how can we make it more responsive to the people it was formed to serve? Democracy Decoded is a podcast by the Campaign Legal Center. It examines our government and discusses innovative ideas that could lead to a stronger, more transparent, accountable, and inclusive democracy. In season two, host Simone Leeper covers everything you need to know about voting in the United States. She speaks with experts from across the country and voters representing impacted communities about the deliberate barriers to voting that exist today. She asks, how can we make our voting system more inclusive? Because our democracy works best when every voter can participate. Listen to the latest season at democracydecoded.org or wherever you get your podcasts. 
yeah, it's it's certainly dangerous. The question is whether we are seeking it or exacerbating it or reading the situation right. You know, and Rosa, we don't have a great track record of reading the situation right. You know, we got the threat of the Soviet Union wrong. We overstated it. We certainly have overstated the threat of Russia. We overstated the threat of terrorists. And in fact, the defense complex that Ed was talking about earlier seems to have built its whole existence around the idea of overstating international threats because that suits their business. But of course, there's been a very high cost for the United States through all of that. No sign of that changing anytime soon, though, is there? The business of threat inflation is a big business, and our friend Mike Zenko wrote a whole book about it, particularly with regard to, to terrorism. Um, no question about it. There are lots of vested interests that, that find it advantageous to have a perpetual sense of panic, uh, and that's really hard to shift. You know, it's, it's our current version of the military-industrial complex, which is obviously no longer just an industrial complex, but a sort of broader security and tech complex. I think that's absolutely true. And I think it's really hard to fight because it's not just a matter of opinions. It's a matter of organizational structures. You know, it's, it's one thing to say, hey, I changed my mind. Things aren't so bad, whether we're talking about a particular country or a particular type of threat. But we now have all these organizations, uh, both inside the U.S. government, the executive branch, and external contractors, with, which have, you know, it, it's, it's bureaucracies that are harder to change. You know, it's not so much the, the intellectual side of it that's hard to shift, it's the bureaucratic side of it that's very hard to shift. You know, when you have entire offices that have been stood up to respond to, for instance, the threat of terrorism, when you have lots and lots of contractors that have multi-year contracts to produce things or do things that are supposed to combat the threat of terrorism, that's harder to wind down. The one thing I would quibble with that you said, though, David, is I'm not sure we did underestimate the threat of Russia. I mean, it depends what you mean by the threat of Russia, right? If, if we're thinking of Russia in kind of in economic terms, for instance, it's, it's not a major power. If we're thinking in terms of Russia's ability to influence and persuade and attract the loyalty of lots of other countries, it's pretty minimal. But the ability of Russia to be a spoiler, I think they're continuing to demonstrate in Ukraine. Uh, and the ability of Russia to essentially you know, hold the rest of the world somewhat hostage with, with threats of nuclear weapons use remains pretty significant. So, so on that one, I'm not, I'm not sure that we have uh, overestimated the threat. If anything, in some ways, I sometimes think on the nuclear threat that we continue to underestimate it. That we're we're a little too quick to go. Oh, nah, that'll be okay. It's you know they're not going to do it. And I hope I think that's probably right. I hope that's right. But I, I actually think that we we continue to actually underestimate the serious risks that exist. And you know, just sort of picking up on this, the, the you know the the main job in Washington is the job of protecting U.S. national security. Eisenhower warned of the rise of a military-industrial complex that shifted our priorities away from what our priorities ought to be to military-industrial priorities. Uh, and still to this day, we see this desire to cast every potential struggle as an existential struggle and to suggest that every potential solution we need is essentially all solutions, that we need carrier battle groups, and we need manned aircraft, and we need missiles, and we need nukes, and we need cyber, and we need to be bigger than everybody in the world, and we need to be able to respond to every potential threat. 
And we're the only country in the world that thinks in those particular terms. And it has impoverished the country for decades and decades in terms of dealing with our priorities. But it shows no sign of letting up because throughout my life, every time a major threat was seen to abate, the apparatus showed this remarkable creative regenerative ability to say, oh no, but there is this other existential threat, or this existential threat has morphed into some new form. And, you know, as you sort of look forward, we see a country that has huge needs in terms of education, in terms of health, in terms of public investment, in terms of climate, and so on and so forth, and is still going to put those in a back seat, addressing, you know, a new superpower threat from a superpower that has never had global ambitions, uh, is much smaller than we are, is unlikely to be our rival in many ways for a long, long time to come, and with whom we have a deeply intertwined economy. It seems pathological to me, but perhaps, again, I'm overstating it. Now, look, I'm really glad that we're having this conversation because it's an exceptionally rare one to be having at least in formal sort of settings in Washington, D.C. This topic is not popular. What is popular, and you can check sort of every day whether you're watching TV or looking at the think tank, you know, events that are being held, that the topic is the opposite. It's about the threat of China. It's about how we combat it. And I have sort of two worries about that. One is the one you just outlined, is that, you know, that actually this is um, substituting for really important action and focus and debate on what should be done at home in the United States to improve our lives, but also abroad in terms of tackling the real existential threat, which is climate change, which affects Chinese Americans and everyone else in between. But my second fear is the self-fulfillingness of this conversation, because clearly China you know, is at a, is at a moment where it's feeling like it could be weakening. It's triumphalism of the last decade that, you know, America is a broken, declining, decadent capitalist power is beginning to lose steam and force, particularly as Chinese growth rates decline, as its demography ages, as its productivity, as its sort of magical productivity spurt of the, the 80s, 90s and 40s begins to plateau. China's um, experiencing self-doubt. And to have on top of that what I think is a very unstatesmanlike, rather one-dimensional American depiction of China and the threat it poses actually increases the ch chances that China will pose that threat, particularly in the rhetoric around Taiwan. So that, that does really concern me. And I, I think that if there were not only the hedging that we're seeing from the Biden administration on China going rogue, but also, in addition to that, efforts to try and incentivize and engage a different kind of China and create another kind of narrative to the collision narrative we both seem to be on, then I would be feeling more reassured. But, you know, I guess administrations can only pursue sort of w one big thought at a time. And this is a really obvious consensus, bipartisan thought. And the criticisms Biden are receiving, for the most part, are not the kinds that we're making implicitly about this focus. The criticisms is that, are that he's not being hawkish enough. That's where the real heat is coming from, coming from the right. 
Yeah, no question about it. David, I'd like to pick up with you in a second, but this is the point in the show where we say bye to the folks that who are in the general public, and we encourage you, if you want to listen to the whole broadcast, just like all our other broadcasts, to go and become a member. Go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, sign up, get 33% more content, and actually more than that in terms of uh, other kinds of benefits of sponsorship. They're all listed there. It's $5 a month. We hope you will do it. And we will endeavor to uh, use uh, the support you give us to produce more good content conversations like this one. Uh, For those of you who are leaving, thanks for joining us. For those of you who are sticking with us, our members, we'll be back in one moment. 